We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. On Easter weekend 1993, Nelson Mandela was engaged in slow-moving, power-sharing talks with President F.W. de Klerk, when a white supremacist shot Mandela's heir apparent, Chris Harney, in the hope of igniting an all-out civil war. On this episode of the podcast, acclaimed South African journalist Justice Malala recounts the riveting story of the pivotal nine days that followed Harney's murder and the extraordinary effort of leadership that was needed to avert a crisis that could have developed into a full-scale war. Our host for this conversation is Alec Russell, foreign editor of the Financial Times. Here's Alec with more. Hello, everyone. Uh, Very wonderful to be with you and especially fine for us to be with Justice Malala to talk about his new book. Justice, I've known you a long time. I've known you for almost all the 30 years since the big event that is the subject of your book. And in that time, Justice has written for all the great South African publications. He's edited some of them. He's run his own TV show. You've also written for some great international publications, the Financial Times, one or two others whose names I obviously can't remember. Uh, But more seriously, Justice is arguably the most respected commentator on South Africa, certainly one of the highly respected commentators on on South Africa. And he's written several books. And we're here, Justice, to talk about your latest, which is just out, The Plot to Save South Africa. And I was very, very struck by it. It's about leadership. It's It's a true crime story. But it's also, most important, it's about South Africa at a particular period in its history when when its future hung in the, in the balance. Now, Justice, it focuses on an appalling assassination and the crisis that followed this killing. And this killing occurred exactly 30 years ago when you were a young reporter at the Star newspaper. I think maybe can you start by just painting a very quick picture of where South Africa was 30 years ago, just before you heard the shocking news, which you write about in this book. 
So thank you so much, Alec, for having me. Thanks to the Intelligence Squad for having both of us. Many, many people would say to you, do you remember when Nelson Mandela walked out of prison? And they'll say, yes, February 11, 1990. And that's the marker between apartheid and a new South Africa. But actually, when Nelson Mandela walked out of prison in, in 1990, it was just the beginning. He got released, his comrades get released. Um, the ANC comes back from exile. Remember, the ANC was in London, in the Soviet Union, in Zambia, all over the world. The ANC's leaders begin to come back into South Africa in 1990. Negotiations with FW de Klerk and the apartheid government begin. But it wasn't inevitable that this was going to end up well. As soon as Mandela walks out of prison, terrible violence breaks out, allegedly between his ANC and uh, the Inkata Freedom Party and other groupings. Um, thousands of people, on average 4,000 people, die every year in 1990, 1991, in political violence. For me, I just remember, you know, you'd get up in the morning and the news bulletins would be about the people who died overnight. And you'd spend the day thinking about what was going to happen that evening. Um, and death would definitely come knocking on many people's doors. In that time, Mandela accuses Dietlerk of not doing anything to stop the violence. Dietlerk accuses Mandela that you're not stopping your militants from engaging in the violence. The relationship between the two men, Mandela, who had said Dietlerk is a man of integrity, Dietlerk, who had said Mandela is a man I can do business with, suddenly the two men, they are at loggerheads. They're, they're fighting each other. It's not looking great. The negotiations are suspended, are resuscitated, suspended. So in the week uh, running up to, to April 10, 1993, the negotiations had just been resuscitated after a second collapse of those negotiations. So a time of hope and despair and hope and despair, and then this happens. And that's when the despair really sets in and, and we face a crisis yet again in South Africa. So let's turn to the, to the this. If the worst, worst possible thing that could have happened then was the assassination of Nelson Mandela, what happened was arguably the second worst thing, and it was really, really bad. You were in the newsroom of the Star newspaper uh, on your first day, I think, as a trainee reporter. What happened? So <laughs> it was one of those days I wasn't supposed to be there. It's just that all the senior reporters were told, get out of here, uh, we're getting out. You know, South Africa, is a, it's a very religious country, very uh, Christian country. And the Easter weekend is the way the Americans treat Thanksgiving. Everyone gets out of town. Everyone goes and spends time with their uncle they disagree with politically. It's, it's one of those. Everyone gets out of town. So Nelson Mandela that morning, uh, that Thursday, had got out of uh, Johannesburg, gone back to to his rural home where he'd built himself a house in Kunu, uh, in the Transkei. I know you've been there. F.W. Dietlerik had gone off to his grandmother's farm in the, in the Plain Karoo, in, in, in the semi-desert in South Africa. Essentially, if you could, you got out. 
I had just started on the internship program at the Star, and the news editor said, "I need some, I need some bodies to come and work over the weekend." And so I was one of those uh, chosen to go up and and be in the newsroom. And this is what happens: a right wing extremist uh, who'd been in cahoots with a conservative. A member of parliament, someone who'd broken off from the National Party, which was in power, and gone off and started the Conservative Party with other extremists in the South African political landscape. They together had had schemed, and and on that day, Janis Walush, who was the shooter, followed Chris Hani uh, as he left his home, went to buy uh, uh, newspapers walked back uh, into his yard, and this man followed him and shot him twice in the chest and twice in the back of the head, and uh, uh, did so in front of his 13-year-old daughter, and Chris Hani was murdered. Now, Chris Hani uh, had just been elected the, the Secretary General of the Communist Party of South Africa. He'd been a long-time leader of the ANC's army, Umkonto Wesizwe, he, you know, uh, Mandela's biographers have all written about how when Mandela wanted to go to a volatile area, to an area that was angry, in pain, he would always take Trisani with him. Surveys at the time said this man was the most popular black leader in South Africa after Nelson Mandela. Uh, he was loved by everyone from the intelligentsia to uh, young militant radicals of the ANC on the streets, on the ground. And by killing Chris Hani, you essentially just stabbed at the heart of these young people who had placed hope in the ANC. If you took Nelson Mandela out, you, you could start a war. If you took the second most popular person, Chris Hani, you could start a war. And this person in particular, when Mandela was negotiating and was being seen as soft on the apartheid government and so forth, Trishani was the man who would say, no, no, we are on track, we, are, we have a strategy and so forth, and could calm things, things down. So the idea for, for the assassins was that Trishani would be murdered and uh, it would spark so much rioting and unrest and protest that the army would then oust uh, F.W. de Klerk, install a military administration, and um, essentially reverse everything that you and I saw developing the, the arrival of democracy, that all that would come to a dead halt, and uh, we'd go back to the 1980s and 1970s, where it was essentially deep apartheid, uh, separation of the races. They wanted to stop history. They wanted to stop it all. So that is what happens on April 10, 1993. And you then jump into a battered, probably sort of Toyota Corolla from the star and head to the scene and, and, uh, and, and off you start reporting on it. But, but meanwhile, of course, the message is going out, well, it's going out across South Africa. And what you do in your book, Justice, is you, you've spoken to so many people who were in positions of, sometimes in positions of influence, and sometimes just people who were involved in this, this crisis that unfolded. And you've recreated an extraordinary picture of what happened. I wonder if you could start, though, by describing 
Nelson Mandela, his reaction when he hears the news, he's hundreds and hundreds of miles away, finally getting a day or so off. And as I said earlier, really, the worst news possible is brought to him. So Mandela had a regime. He he'd started for he'd he'd uh, he'd been a he'd been a worker and a runner, a very fit person before he went to prison in the early 1960s. But he he had a regime. He got up at four or four thirty a.m. and uh, by five a.m. he'd be taking a walk. He did it this on this day, the 10th of April. He got up very early in the morning, took a long four-hour walk, ended up back at his house. Uh, he's sitting down with a with a journalist who's helping him work on um, on long walk to freedom. His biography. When he's told that oh, some rugby team is outside to say hello to you, as is Mandela's want. Uh, you know, instead of saying no, I'm busy, he says no. Okay, I'll go and say hello to them. So at about ten fifteen a.m., we know that Nelson Mandela is is outside his house that. 24 beefy, tall rugby players, all of them kind of, oh, we've come to see Nelson Mandela. It was the border rugby team, I believe it was. And he's he's saying hello to all these people. His housekeeper comes outside and says, Mr. Mandela, you have to come to the telephone. Uh, he says, no, I'm busy. She says, you absolutely, there's some bad news. You need to come back. He goes back inside, picks up the phone. It's Barbara Masekela, his chief of staff on the call, and she says, this is going to be devastating. Uh, Chris Honey has been murdered, and the country is exploding. Mandela puts the phone down, goes back outside, finishes saying, greeting the rugby team, then goes back inside and um, sits down. And he's devastated. Mandela is absolutely, totally devastated by the news. He's written and said this uh, uh, several times at various points that, Trisani was like a son to him, that he regarded him as politically a friend, a comrade, someone that he respected, that he consulted with very frequently. And so he's totally devastated. He makes several calls. And one of the first things he does is decide that I'm going to see uh, Trisani's parents who are in uh, not too far from where he was in the, in the trans guy, just to commiserate, to, to be with them. I also posit that Mandela was so devastated by this and knew the extent of it, that in those first few hours of receiving the news, he was human. He was so devastated. He didn't have or know how to proceed um, with, with so much devastation going on. So, so as the day proceeds, you see Mandela almost lost, in my view, um, I think he's thinking a lot about what is next. How do I deal with this? And at some point, he begins to start dealing with it. And that's that's in two ways, by reaching out to F.W. de Klerk. And secondly, by deciding that, okay, after everything is done, there is someone else who is just as beloved and who could also galvanize young people's anger. And that was Bantu Holomisa, who was... Uh, who was the leader of the trans guy, where the territory where Mandela uh, was on that day. And so he does two things. He speaks to the cleric and he, he waits for Bantu Holomisa to come back from Swaziland so that he can keep him close and take him along with him when he goes and does consultations in Johannesburg. So Mandela, in that day, Mandela was 
was devastated. Mandela was, was in pain and you can see his pain and he goes and sees the parents and he doesn't move as decisively as many of us would have wanted him to. Only later on does he do it. But the key thing for the day is that pivotal phone call, 30 minutes with F.W. de Klerk, in which the two men, de Klerk says, I have, no, I have no power, I have no credibility. I may be the president of South Africa, but this is, and, and he said this directly, he said, this is Mandela's moment. If I said a word, I would make that situation worse. And so in that phone call, they agree that Mandela will go on television for the first time uh, that evening and address the nation as the leader of the country as such. And for me, it's a hugely, hugely important moment because, you know, until 1990, you couldn't say Mandela on television in South Africa. Uh, the name itself was banned. You couldn't quote the man uh, without facing a five-year jail term. It was incredible. But on that day, three years after he's out of prison, Nelson Mandela that evening goes to goes on national television to address the nation about the real crisis that South Africa was facing. Actually, what you're saying is that, that, that extraordinarily, well, on the day of the assassination of Chris Hani, it seemed really quite possible that the whole transition was going to go into reverse and South Africa was, was going to head, head down a terrible path. Actually, what it ended up by doing at an awful cost, namely the, the death of Chris Hani, what it ended up doing was it accelerated the process of change. But I just want to come back to what you said about Mandela and, and an insight into how he was, of course, a human being. Over the course of the 10 days that ensued after the assassination, I think it's fair to say from, from, from you know, having, having read your book that it's not as if Mandela made all the calls correctly, did he? He made the big ones ultimately. But what's so interesting is that he was a human being and like many leaders, he's having to find his way. And, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit uh, about that because the popular memory of that time is the awful killing of, of Chris Hani, uh, the baton is passed from F.W. de Klerk to Nelson Mandela, and wonderfully the transition gets accelerated. But there were times in the days that followed when there must have been massive misgivings among people in the ANC about Mandela and what he was doing. Absolutely. Um, it was an extraordinary nine, ten days of that. First of all, Trisani gets assassinated. Um, that evening, Mandela goes on television. Now, the popular history, and, and it's exactly what you say. The thing that is amazing is that you speak to South Africans, many, many of us who were there at the time, and you say, what happened then? And we say, oh, Mandela went on television. He gave the speech of his life, and peace was restored. And we, we continued, and we got a, a, an election date, and 1994 happened, and it was all... It was all good and fine and kumbaya. Actually, it wasn't like that. <laughs> Mandela got back to Johannesburg. He, he gave oh, a very boring speech. <laughs> he gave an absolutely. <laughs> it was it was not just boring, but it was a speech that was you know it was written for him. He read it in the car from the airport to the studio. Um, he didn't make any changes to it. Mandela had a problem with his eyes, and he was reading it from autocue, so he couldn't quite see. So. It's read in a halting manner. 
one of the best pieces that that's ever been done in the FT. And I know FT readers are, are listening to this, but it's about Mandela and his sense of style and sense of clothes. He loved clothes. He loved he loved wearing suits. He loved looking good. And and this piece in the FT, uh, which I think I've referenced in the book, was about how he threw out the 50s and so forth. So Mandela always dressed for the occasion. On that day, Mandela didn't, you know, he was dressed in a light uh, sort of golf suit, if you will. He just wasn't in the moment. He stumbled over the speech and it was delivered late, late at night, nearly 11 p.m. And so many people didn't actually see it. So the crisis then continues into the Sunday and then into uh, the Monday. So it's a four-week holiday and, and day two and day three, it becomes clear that that speech hasn't landed. People don't haven't had it, and and the and the violence continues. Um, ANC leaders from KwaZulu Natal, uh, from the Western Cape, all over the country are saying, "Why are we in these negotiations? Why are we talking uh, when they're killing our leaders, killing our people? It cannot go on like this." So it it continues. Essentially, the the crisis continues for three, four more days until Mandela says, I need to give another speech. That, that speech wasn't, wasn't fantastic. It wasn't great. F.W.D. Clark says, but you've been on television. You've done your bit. You can't do this. And, and Mandela, that's when he becomes resolute and says, no, 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 I've got to do it. And he does finally do it three days later. He gives that this is the speech of his life where he uses... He uses the simplest trick of underlining what was at stake. The killers of Trishani wanted black to go against white, uh, white to go against black to, to light this, this racial uh, conflagration. And so Mandela in his first line says, my fellow South Africans, I'm reaching out to you from the very bottom of my heart. He says, a white man full of hate came to our country and killed our beloved son, Chris Hani. Uh, then he goes on, his third line says, a white woman saw the killer and she had the presence of mind to commit the registration plate of his car to memory and call the police. Within 30 minutes, the assassin was arrested. And he uses that, that don't make this about race because, because just because a white man killed him, think about who led to the arrest of the killer. It's a white man, a neighbor who made the call. So he juxtaposes these two things in that speech and gives a powerful, powerful, powerful speech that, that then gets people to begin to say, oh, what's going on here? Maybe this is changes the narrative as it were. But but it wasn't easy, easy going for him that it was, he gave another speech the next day at Jaulani Amphitheater, a small stadium that carries 8,000 people max. On that day, there were 25,000 people inside the stadium, another 15 to 20,000 outside. Um, it looked like it was going to collapse. And Mandela was booed there. He was booed because he said, I have to work with F.W. de Klerk, he said to this crowd. And they were totally not in the mood to hear that. 
but he went on anyway. He said, after, after the, the booing went on for a while, he said, sometimes you have to work with people you don't like to achieve what you want. And he was basically saying, I, I have to work with Dietlerk even if I may not like him right now. And those are the, some of the leadership moments, I think, that began to emerge, you know, a few days later after that initial first day when Mandela, in my view, stumbled, was very hurt and pained by uh, Chris Hani's murder and had had gone a bit slowly, you know, in a slightly trying to find his way. It, it wasn't, it, let me put it this way. I, I like, I, this is the Mandela I like, who is human, who, who, all of us, you know, Mandela is this man, goes to prison for 27 years, comes back stoic and all this. But Mandela was very human. He felt pain. He felt hurt. He felt joy. And he, he tied. And, I, you know, I've, I've been inspired by some of his. He always emphasized this, that he was not special. He merely faced up to the demons and, and tied. And, and, and so I wanted to show some of that Nelson Mandela as well, that, that you know, he wasn't, he, he tied. He stumbled and he fell and he, he got up again. And, and I think that's the Nelson Mandela I like to tell my kids about, that we're all tying here. And he tried. He tried hard. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I want to come on to someone else who, who emerges from this narrative incredibly well. Another leader, I suppose. So there are probably some of you watching who, who may not have been to South Africa. It's a vast, vast, sprawling country. And uh, if you think back to 1993, pre-social media, pre-internet, communications 
across different parts of the country, not great. So even with an inspiring leader like Nelson Mandela, that was not going to be enough for all these different townships where people were understandably enraged by this, this appalling news and, and so on and so forth. One figure that, uh, that you were light on, uh, who played a rather, rather extraordinary and rather wonderful role uh, at that time, was Muhammad Ali. I wonder if you could just tell people about this, because it's just a, it's a, I see it really as a reflection of what you're doing, Justice. You're not just recreating the big picture. You're, you're telling it through different lenses. Just, give us a, just tell us about Muhammad Ali's role in, in, in this story. Yeah, I, I, you know, Alec, it's one of those things. You, you know, as a kid growing up in apartheid South Africa, Muhammad Ali was such a powerful figure someone who stands up against oppression, against, stood against apartheid and so forth. And so in 1990, Nelson Mandela comes out of prison, goes to the U.S., meets um, Muhammad Ali, says, you must come to South Africa. Muhammad Ali's people get around to organizing it. And in 1993, on the morning of that uh, Saturday, the 10th of April, uh, Muhammad Ali lands in Johannesburg, at the same time, essentially, as uh, Chris Hani is murdered. So, uh, you know, there's a thousand people waiting with placards for Muhammad Ali at, uh, at, the, at the time it was called Jan Smart Airport. They are ecstatic. He arrives and they tell him one of the great leaders of the ANC has been murdered and it's, um, you know, the country looks like it's blowing up and so forth. And so he holds this press conference is driven into the city of Johannesburg, stays at this, at the time, the fanciest hotel in Johannesburg. But all around him, Johannesburg is exploding now with, with protest, with rioting. People, you know, people heard the news on that day. People heard the news and just started marching through the streets of Johannesburg. Um, just a few blocks away uh, on Simon Street at Chris Hani's offices, Right wing us stop and in a pickup truck and shoot up the facade of the building. It's blowing up. And Muhammad Ali, he sits in his hotel room and this thing is blowing up and he says, I can't just sit around here. So he starts getting out, going up to the protest marches. There's a beautiful letter that he writes to Nelson Mandela saying, I'm in town. I want you to know that I'm here. Call me anytime you want me to do anything. <laughs> Especially the letters so to um, But every day, basically, he, he is watching as this country convulses and he decides, I'm going to be with, with the protesting people. I'm going to, he goes out with a message of peace. He says again and again, listen to your leaders and so forth. But here you have this boxing legend, this demigod, you know, in the eyes of so many South Africans, just pitching up and, and being part of it. And he, he goes in Cape Town on the Wednesday after the assassination, he goes to probably the most violent protest of all the protests that were held. And he, <laughs> he decides, I'm going to go in and join Desmond Tutu, the Nobel laureate, um, in, in the Cape Town City Hall. So he he, along with his entourage in their bus, they go and then he, he uh, gets to a point where he, the bus can't continue. So he keeps on going and he keeps on going and he keeps on going and they get in here and there's tear gas and there's rubber bullets and so forth. And at some point he's coughing and can't 
can't can't breathe, but he he gets through it and he stays and he stays until nighttime and then he goes back to his hotel. But it's a it's a it's a lovely little anecdote about Ali, how you know how he made a choice that week that I'm I'm going to be among among the people who are grieving. And he he you know he visited Hani's home and his children. Uh, he went to the funeral. Then he met Mandela after the crisis. You know, it was over, as it were. But but an it's, amazing- it's your next book, Justice. It's, it's <laughs> the next book. It's got to be Muhammad Ali. I wanted to I want to take you on though to a, a slightly more sobering uh, moment for me, anyway, on, on on reading the book, and that was a moment where you write about a young ANC official who was then one of the bright young things in the movement. He'd been in prison. He was then in the media relations department, uh, a man called Carl Niehaus. And I remember Carl well in, in those days, in the early 90s. He was the, the leading spokesman for the ANC. And he was clearly driven by a sort of moral clarity and certainty that apartheid had been terrible. And uh, even though he'd grown up as an Afrikaner in a sort of small town and whatever, he was going to do his bit and had joined the ANC and gone to prison. The years haven't been so good to his reputation, actually, the years post-apartheid, and he's been caught up in a number of scandals and, and so on. And I guess I just wonder whether you found it almost cathartic, given the difficulties that South Africa's facing now, and we'll, we'll come to them, everyone that, that's watching, but whether you found it cathartic to, to go back to write about a time when the issues were more clear-cut in a way. You had this awful system, white minority rule, that had to come to an end, and it was seemingly staggering to a close, but against the backdrop of awful violence. And and that was it, this great moral issue of our time. And uh, that's what was at stake. And whether writing about those days was, was almost a bit of a relief compared to writing about the the, the scandals that, that many in the ANC have been caught up in. No, absolutely. There were two things. First of all, it was... a. Uh... The, the moral clarity that you speak about, Alec, is it was so profound. Um, there was right and there was wrong. Um, there was the good guys and the bad guys, and and in this book you see a lot of that. I also wanted to. You mentioned Karl Niehaus. Karl Niehaus was the leader of the ANC. He came through the Christian uh, movement, Christian anti-apartheid movement. And many of his comrades and the people that he operated with in that time in the ANC, you know, have now been mired in scandals. So in this book, you see characters like Jacob Zuma, uh, Cyril Rosa, who is now the president of South Africa. You know, they are central to that week and to the transition um, from apartheid to, to a democratic state. So I wanted to write about that and the dreams and I, I, I include myself, the dreams we had for this country. And secondly, the leadership that was displayed by not just Nelson Mandela, but a whole range of people who stood up, who were astute enough to say, our country is at the brink. And what do we do to, to push it, to hold it back, to, to drag it back from the brink? And and they did it. So on the one side, your FW clerics and so forth. Uh, on the other, Nelson Mandela, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, and so forth. I think it was extraordinary what 
You know, I, I speak to you today from the U.S., and I think that one of the points I would say I'd like to make would be, how does it in the United States today there are legislators, lawmakers speaking about, oh, you know, let's just let's just have a national divorce, as it were, about uh, and the red states go and the uh, and the blue states go and so forth. So times of great division, and and South Africa was at that time when the divisions look so deep, and those divisions could actually destroy the unity, the country that you have. Nelson Mandela and F.W. Duterte, um, um, Karl Niehaus on his side, uh, people like Rolf Meyer and Cyril Ramaphosa said, no, we will, despite our differences, despite our history, we'll reach across the divide and find something. It's one of the key lessons I'm hoping come out of this book. And, and I look at the U.S. now and with all these this, this divisions, and I say, whoa, do, do you have to wait until you think this thing is going to break? Or is it time for leaders to emerge who, who, who will say, you know, let's, let's hold out the hand and across this divide and try and see if we can't find that. I think Nelson Mandela... Good, good luck with that, Justice. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I, Justice, I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to ask one question for now about the present, just moving, moving forward. As has been much written about by many people, the last 15 years in particular of, of the 30 years since that moment have, have not been good for the NC's repu reputation. The ruling party has become totally intertwined with the state. There were these appalling years under Jacob Zuma, who appears, as you say in your book, the last president of South Africa, where there was what was known as the phenomenon of, of state capture, uh, and on and on and on. I just wondered, your book is called The Plot to Save South Africa. Do you think, this is a big question, this, I'm afraid, <laughs> but uh, you can answer it quite crisply because I'm sure people will come back to it. Can the ANC be saved? Um. I don't think so. I think at the moment, the ANC has become so mired in bad practices and bad, bad norms and cultures that it's become a prisoner of its own history, of its own troubles. So I'll give you an example. There is massive, massive corruption in the uh, state electricity provider, ESCOM. Three days ago, it emerges that the Minister of Finance has given ESCOM an exemption not to report wasteful expenditure, essentially corruption, in its books, just so that it doesn't get a bad credit rating from your S&Ps and, and, and so forth. Now, there is something so fundamentally wrong about this, that you think, no, to keep having a good score, let me sweep this, this stuff under the carpet. And, and for me, it's, it, it was shocking to read this, and many South people in South Africa are shocked and, and uh, angry about it. And yet the fact that the ANC would not stop and say, no, but there's something fundamentally wrong with, with saying a corrupt entity that is broken cannot, can sweep this stuff under the carpet or just, you know, keep it off the books. I know, oh. I know, it's so depressing. Yeah. So it's, it's just one example, a small one, a recent one this week that shows you just how troubled this is. So with that kind of attitude, with that kind of stance towards corruption, which is one of the key main problems that we face in South Africa right now, 
my view is that the ANC can't be saved. It needs it needs a total overhaul. And and attempts to save the ANC have been made. Cyril Ramaphosa, five years ago, I was one of those people who was writing that, you know what, the ANC now has a chance. Here's a man with the ethos and so forth of the Mandelas and so forth, uh, and he's coming back on his... Uh, Forced to save the ANC. Well, you know, you look back and it's been five years. It's been slow. I think Ramaphosa, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the man. And yet I think that he is incapable of being that savior for the ANC. There's a sort of Shakespearean quality to him, really, isn't there? You feel somewhat this sort of tragic, somewhat tragic figure. I don't want to kind of overdo it because obviously he's presiding over this uh, organization which is not leading South Africa well at all at the moment in, in in my view but when you look at his past which you write about in your book and there, there he was he was at, at the right hand of Mandela huge figure in the in the negotiations that followed actually the murder of Chris Harney absolutely essential in in getting the the settlement the constitution a few years later done and now there he is presiding over a sort of corrupted party. Um, I want to turn, though, Justice, to a question that links the past to the present. Uh, do you think young South Africans today appreciate the leadership of Hani and Mandela? Do you think young South Africans appreciate or remember the leadership of Hani and Mandela? No. I, Big I, question. I, <laughs> thank you, Alec. It's a, it's a question I really enjoy because... Part of my reasons for writing this book, I've been a bit angry with my country people uh, uh, and, and my anger emanates from the fact that sometimes when we have a good thing, we don't see it. Nelson Mandela's leadership, uh, the more I read about it, the more I delved into it, is almost transcendental. And I'm, I don't mean to defy him because in my book, I actually tried to show him uh, the human side of him a little bit. But I think Nelson Mandela's leadership in those critical moments in the 1990s was absolutely sublime. Today, uh, many, many young South Africans are asking big questions about, about the transition, about the new South Africa, about its 30 years in existence. And, and Nelson Mandela is vilified in some quarters about, oh, you know, he gave away too much. He did this. He was outplayed, out-negotiated, outgunned by uh, the apartheid government. It's all untrue in my, in, my, in my view, because Nelson Mandela gifted South Africa with something amazing and wonderful. And it was self-determination. It was the ability to run its own affairs and mold the future as it wanted to do. And I think... I think we can point to many failures since 1994, but I don't think they are at the root. At, at their root is Nelson Mandela and the settlement of 1994. We failed to govern as South Africa. We failed to govern and we continue to fail to do that. And we've been given the most extraordinary constitution in the world, pointing fingers at Nelson Mandela or Chris Rani and saying, oh, you know, the negotiations were a sham and so forth, which is what happens a lot. I think it's a, it's the ultimate cop out. I think it's the ultimate lack of responsibility. We need to look. But do you at think? But though, though, just to go back to the question, do you think if if you were talking to an audience of say twenty mid to late teenagers, sixteen to eighteen year olds across South Africa, would most of them be saying the old man sold us out? It's a conversation. It's a conversation I hear a lot. I think a lot of uh, there is a lot of. 
questioning of of the new South Africa and and what it does. And you you've made the point, Alec, about about the past and the present and the past and the present and a huge chunk of it because the present is so painfully. Uh, has failed to to live up to the expectations of 1994. Those 20 young people, I think many of them would be saying, uh, I think Mandela, maybe in that conversation, not, not sold us out, but that no, the new South Africa is not, it's not what it should be. And and this this we can go back on policy issues. You can say land and restitution of land, which was at the heart of South Africa's apartheid government and over thirty over a hundred years of of South Africa's troubles. That eighty seven percent of the land in nineteen ninety four was in white hands, and only thirty percent was in black hands. And Mandela said, "We will change this," and so forth. And subsequent to that, post-1994, even today, the land issue is still a big, 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 big issue and so forth. Those policy failures, the failure to govern is where we are. And I don't think Mandela's responsible for that. He wasn't governing since 1999. Well, Justice, I'm, I'm afraid I think we're going to have to wrap this up now. Justice, thank you for a truly fascinating conversation. And it is actually rather inspiring to return to that era when when, when the dreams were there and, the, and, and there were a number of uh, astonishing leaders. I'm Alec Russell, and you've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much.